0: The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, Colossians is finally here. There it is. You're probably wondering, what in the world is that? And uh, I will get to explain that later. But we are diving into the book of Colossians, and I'm very excited about that. Before we kind of dive dive into it, I want to give you just a background, a little bit of uh, introduction to the city of Colossae and to the church of Colossae. The letter of Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul. If you could put up the map, you will see here this zoomed in version of Ephesus to Colossae. It's about 100 miles apart. Paul preached in Ephesus for about three years. Uh, There is a gentleman, I believe his name is Epaphroditus, I need to look it up, in Colossae, who traveled to Ephesus, sat under Paul's teaching, and was converted to Christianity. He went back to Colossae and planted the church. And it's to that church that Paul is writing. The city of Colossae and Ephesus was part of the Roman Empire. And this is very influential on the church in Colossae. The Roman Empire was enormous. It contained one Fifth of the world's population, uh, it endured for over 600 years. Um, it was large and it was in charge, and yet the Roman Empire also made the world very small, kind of like the internet does today, in which you are introduced to other cultures and belief practices very easily. The way that the Roman Empire made the church, the the sorry, the world small was that they had a well-developed system of roads, and so. Um, Not only did they have a well-developed system of roads, they also had kind of this universal language of Greek. And because of the roads and because of the universal language, the religions, the beliefs, the practices, the trades, the goods were cross-pollinating all throughout the Roman Empire. And so the church was introduced, the church in Colossae was introduced to a lot of philosophies and a lot of theologies, and they were starting to infest the church. And they started to become what is called syncretistic, which means they started adopting different beliefs from different practices and adding it onto their Christianity. And so it was sort of a religious buffet. They would take their plate of Christianity, they walk down the line, they would take some of the Jewish traditions, put it on their plate, they would take some of the Roman gods, put that on their plate, they would take different philosophies, put that on their plate, and they would create this super religion for people. And Paul is writing into that culture to say, no, Jesus is enough. Maybe you've heard this term before, but it is gospel math. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Paul is claiming that Christ is a sufficient Savior, that Christ is a superior Savior, that you need not add to Jesus. Jesus is simply enough for you. And so you may be here, and you might be a skeptic of Christianity. You may say, how dare you say there is only one way to God? How dare you say there's only one way to heaven? That is so absurd. Matter of fact, I was at Applebee's a few weeks ago, and I was working on the sermon, and I overheard a girl behind me talking to her boyfriend about how she had collected all of these things from these different religions and put them together to create her own religion, and how there was this Christian girl in one of her classes that, that, that tried to tell her about Jesus and that Jesus was the Savior of the world and he was the only way. And she talked about how idiotic that was and how absurd it was. And that might be your opinion today. If so, I'm so glad you're here because Colossians is written for you. You might be here and you say, no, I am a a conservative Christian. I believe the Bible is the word of God. I believe Jesus is the only way of salvation. And you may confess that with your mouth. But what you do in private says something completely different. Maybe you have a habitual sin in your life. Maybe you run to substitute saviors. Maybe Maybe you run to drugs or alcohol. Maybe you run to really good things. Maybe you run to things like family to satisfy you because you are not yet convinced that Jesus is a sufficient Savior. Or maybe you are paralyzed with fear and anxiety. Maybe it rises up during certain times of the month when you get overwhelmed. You may confess with your mouth that Jesus is a superior Savior, but in the restlessness of your heart, you're you're expressing something different. And so you see, no matter where you are on this spectrum... To know that Jesus is the sufficient Savior, to know that he is the superior Savior, is something that each and every one of us needs to be reminded of time and time again. And that's what Paul is doing in his letter to the Colossians. If you would please open up to Colossians chapter 1. this is uh, We are only going to cover the first two verses. If you're in the Red Bible, it's page 983. If you're in the Children's Bible, it's page fourteen fifty six. We're only going to cover the first two verses. And and listening to other pastors preach on this, a lot of pastors just kind of skip over this as just this you know uh, generic salutation that Paul gives to all the churches. And it's true, he does give a salutation similar to this to all his churches, a greeting. But what we see here is it is profound what he is communicating. Uh, what we gloss over quickly is something that has an eternal impact on our lives. And so let's look and see what Paul has to say as he greets the church at Colossae and as he greets us here today. Colossians 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so rich. We could spend weeks just on these two verses alone, God. And yet we confess that we are so flippant with your word, God. We take it for granted. We don't access it like we should. We don't dwell on it like we ought. Lord God, I pray that as we see the truths that are laid out in this very simple greeting, that we would see that our identity is not in what we do, but in what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Paul begins his argument about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ with reminding believers who we are in Christ. He reminds us that our identity is fully established in God through Christ. Now, knowing who you are also means you have to know who you are not, right? And so Paul starts out the letter by telling us that he is an apostle, but making very clear that we are not. In verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. He doesn't say Paul and Timothy apostles. He says, Paul, an apostle, Timothy, our brother. Timothy was one of the great leaders in the church, in the early church, and yet Timothy is not an apostle. But Paul says, I, Paul, am an apostle. And so the question is, what is an apostle? Well, an apostle is someone, an apostle of Christ Jesus is someone that was instructed and commissioned directly by Jesus Christ himself. Someone that was appointed by Christ to be an authority to bring forth the gospel into the world. And so we see back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, including Judas, to go and share the good news of Jesus. And he calls them apostles because he's sending them out to proclaim the good news. And so we know that the 12 disciples are apostles. But what we also find out is that Paul himself claims to be an apostle. Now, this is kind of strange because Paul never actually walked with Jesus. Paul wasn't one of those 12 disciples with Jesus. As a matter of fact, at that time, Paul was opposed to Jesus. And so why can Paul call himself an apostle Well, it's a very important thing that we designate him as an apostle, and we'll see why later. But first, we need to know, why can Paul call himself an apostle? Well, if you look in Ephesians, and especially in Galatians chapter 1 and 2, Paul defends his apostleship. And Paul tells the story of how he used to persecute the church. He was kind of an apostle, not an apostle of Christ Jesus, but an apostle of the synagogue to go out and to put Christians in jail. And he also approved of the killing of Christians like Stephen. Well, one time he was sent out, commissioned by the synagogue to go to Damascus to persecute the church. And on the road, a great light shined around him. And he said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Saul, excuse me. And Saul says, who are you? And he says, Jesus. And so through that experience, Saul becomes Paul. And he he undergoes this dramatic conversion. And he starts preaching Jesus in the synagogues. The Jews chase him out of town and he disappears for a few years. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. You can follow along up on the screen. Galatians 1 verse 16. This is Paul speaking, defending his apostleship, okay? He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then you, you can see how important this is to him. He says, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. So he's saying, you know what? I became a Christian. I went away. I didn't talk to any of the apostles. I didn't have a seminary training underneath them. And then I saw Peter for two weeks. And then it goes on. Verse 21. Then I went to, into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Galatians 2.1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul is converted on the road to Damascus. He disappears for 14 or 17 years, depending what he means by his story. He doesn't doesn't sit under the teaching of any of the 12 disciples, any of the 12 apostles, but he is proclaiming the faith. And so he comes back after 14, 17 years to the apostles, and he says, this is what I have been teaching. This is what God has shown me. Is this right? Is this true? Does this line up with what you are teaching? And this is how they respond. In verse 6, says, those I say who seemed influential, talking about the apostles, the the, the pillars of faith are, are Peter, James, and John. The apostles added nothing to me, meaning to my teaching. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he, God, who worked through Peter for his... apostolic ministry to the circumcised work also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And so Paul, in this, uh, this statement of his apostleship and defining his define, defending his apostleship, tells the story of how he heard from the Lord, was sent out by the Lord, and was not even confirmed until later when he met with the apostles over a decade later. Now, why is this important? Why is it so important that we understand that Paul is an apostle? Why is it so important that Paul starts his letter to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, to the Corinthians? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Well, the reason is simple. If you remember, I told you earlier, Paul had never been to Colossae. He was preaching in Ephesus. It was a man who came sat under him that went and preached in Colossae. And as the church was growing, these false teachers and philosophers came in and started spreading lies. And Paul is writing them this letter to a church he has never met in person. And he is saying, listen to me and not to them. He's saying, I am an authority. I have been commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. Paul claims to be an authority over who the real Jesus is. Paul claims to be an authority over what it means and how we might be saved. Paul claims an authority over refuting the false teachings that are in the church. Paul claims an authority over how we should live as Christians. And so this theologian, Paul, is competing in this letter against all of the whispers, all of the voices, all of the teachings that are going on inside this church of Colossae. And he is saying, ignore them and listen to me. You know, like the Colossians, none of us have ever met the Apostle Paul face to face. And yet Paul is not only writing to the Colossians, he's writing to us 2,000 years later in Green Bay. And he is writing to us to tell us the truths of Jesus Christ. Paul writes with credentials because he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He declares his apostleship that we might know that he is qualified to tell us how we might live our life and what we should believe. You know, credentialing is very important, even today. How many of you here go to the dentist? Anyone want to admit they don't go to the dentist? Don't do that. All right. When you go to the dentist, you go in, right, and they have their credentials on the wall. Does anyone here go to a dentist that's never gone to dental school? Anyone go to a dentist that's never graduated from college or from high school? Of course not, right? You need to know their credentials because you are submitting yourself. You're submitting your mouth to them, right? And you're sitting under their teaching, right? Floss every day. None of you do it, but floss every day, right? Well, maybe you do, I'm sorry. <laughs> I do, of course. So, (laughs) floss every day, right? And so we're submitting to their teaching, but we need to see their credentials. And, And now we just assume their credentials, right? We assume that they are qualified. And so, credentials are very important when you are figuring out who you are placing yourself under. And this really qualifies with all teachers. Whether it's a physics teacher, you want to make sure they have a degree in physics. If it is a math teacher, you want to make sure they have a degree in math. If it's theology, You want to make sure that they've been approved to teach and preach. And so here, Paul is giving his credentials as apostles, as an apostle. And so the question for you is this. Do you believe that Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God? Do you believe he is commissioned to, to disrupt your theology? Is he commissioned to question your behavior? Is he commissioned to change everything you've thought, everything you've believed? Over the next four months, we're going to be going through Colossians. And the question is, will you sit under this teaching? Will you let it oppose you instead of you opposing it? So we see Paul is an apostle. We are not. And so we must unreservedly submit our beliefs and our lives to the teaching that we're going to hear in this letter to the Colossians. We're not apostles, but we are family. Notice the familial language in here. It says, Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers. This term brothers in verse 2 is actually more of an inclusive statement. Some Bible translations translate it brothers and sisters, which is, which is the intent of it, but that we are family. As I mentioned, uh, Paul had never been to Colossae, but Timothy was from around that region. And so it's a little bit interesting. I think we've gotten used to this. But why would Paul consider himself a brother with people that he had never met? The key is in the end of verse 2. Verse 2 says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul and the Colossians did not have the same physical father or physical mother. But they had the same heavenly father. They were not blood brothers and blood sisters as we might think of it today. But they were sisters and brothers by the blood of Christ. That's the beauty of the incarnation. That God took his own son, his very own son, and he sent him into the world that we might become children of God, that by his blood, by his death, and by his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and sending his spirit into us, we are made children of God, co-heirs with Christ, therefore co-heirs with one another. We are brothers and sisters, not by the blood of our mom and dad, but by the blood of our Savior. Now, what are the implications of this? What are the implications of us, excuse me, being a family, us being children of God, us being brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, there are many applications. I'm just going to give you two. The first is this, and I thought of this today because of the announcements, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're all called to chip in on chores. At home, after dinner, We actually have a chore list, and all of us have our little chores. Even little Cooper has his little chores. He has to pull out the table so Daddy can sweep under the table, and then he pushes it back in. And every time there is a child or a father who does not want to do the chores and says, I'm tired, I'm hungry. You know, like if we're playing games, we have plenty of energy, but time to work. It's like my legs don't work. (laughs) Maybe you've heard that. And so my encouragement to them, encouragement is a generous word, my encouragement to them is, listen, you are not a guest. You are not a consumer. You're family. You are an integral part of this family, and we need you to help out around the house. You know, Chris handed out or told you about the volunteer sign-ups today. <clears throat> you may be here, and you are a guest and we're so glad to have you here. And we wouldn't expect you to chip in if you feel like this isn't my home church, this isn't my family. Yet. In, in, in a way, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, but we're just kind of localizing it here to Jake as well. Maybe you're here, though, and you've been here a really long time, and you keep threatening to help. <laughs> you know, you, you keep thinking, I'm, I, I want to help, but there's always things that come up that say, you know what, uh, not now, I can't do it now because this came up or that came up. Some of you are sick, some of you need rest, some of you need healing, and you need to Step away for a while and that's that's okay. But I guess my encouragement to you is if you're here and you're a part of the family of Jacob's well, you are a vital part of the family. We need you to chip in. We need you to help out. Not only because we need the help, but because you are someone that is very important to us and it is critical to your own development and your faith. And so one implication of us being family is that we serve one another. We help out. The other implication is that we are a support system for one another. That we as brothers and sisters in Christ should show familial care to one another. As brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a privilege to provide for one another's physical and spiritual needs. Just a few weeks ago, I hope I have it here. Let's see, it was two Sundays ago. Somebody handed me an envelope and said, would you please give this to such and such, but I don't want them to know who it is that gives it to them. So I took the, the envelope, and I gave it to such and such, just right outside there in the auditorium. And this person was going through a very difficult time. I had no idea what was in the envelope, uh, but I gave it to them. And then I received a phone call uh, midway through the week, and then this card to give back to the recipients, expressing their gratitude. This person was going through a very difficult time. And I just want to share with you a little bit about what they read or what they wrote in response. It says this Dear anonymous benefactors, I am at a loss for the right words to express all that your gift meant to me. It wasn't so much the money or the amount of the money, but the mere fact that you would go out of your way to let me know in visible and tangible ways. That my hardship was not lost on you. Your donation will come in handy, sure. But the blessing went even beyond that. It calmed an anxious heart. It let me know that I wasn't alone and that someone cared. You shared in my suffering. And that was such a great comfort to me. Then on top of all that, someone took the time to search out and compile a list of scriptures and biblical promises to encourage me. Wow. That is all I can say. I am humbled beyond what I can adequately express. Thank you a million times over. What a great picture of family, isn't it? That we would know one another, that we would support one another, that we would love one another. I mean, you might be sitting here and you feel like, I'm a stranger. This isn't family. I don't know anybody. This person knows other folks because they're connected in the intimacy of community groups and Bible studies and things of that nature. But this is our desire that we would be a family. Family fights, family makes up, family cares for one another and loves for one another. So we are children of God. We are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is our identity. Verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Not only are we family, but we are saints and faithful. This term saint carries a lot of baggage for us, a lot of history with us. Many times we think of the traditions in which there are councils that deem certain people saints or certain people not saints. And there's all of these qualifications on they did certain miracles and they're dead or all these things. and, And that's what qualifies them as a saint. Or we might use the word saint in a very reckless way. If we know someone who's just really good, who doesn't have a bad bone in their body, we'll say, that person, Susie, she's such a saint. But what does Paul mean by the word saint? What does the Bible mean? Who's the Bible talking about when it's talking about saints? Well, when we look here, what we see is that it refers to every ordinary day Christians. This is a term that I think we feel very uncomfortable with if you're here today and you're a Christian, and I was actually thinking about pulling someone up, but if I pulled you up in front of here, let's just say it was my wife, Tricia, okay, and, I, and everyone said, say hi to St. Tricia, and they'd say, hi, St. Tricia, would you feel uncomfortable? Yeah. Extremely. <laughs> if, 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 if they said, hi, faithful Tricia, would you feel uncomfortable? Absolutely. I would too. I think you would as well. And the reason is, is because we have bought into this two-tier Christianity that was prevalent in Colossae that Paul is fighting against. When we use this to talk about super-Christians, we're actually using the word saints and faithful to, re- to, to, do some, to, to express the exact opposite of what Paul is trying to communicate. What Paul is trying to communicate is that our identity is not in what we do, but in what Christ has done for us. Our identity is not That we served a bunch of orphans or that we cared for the lost or whatever it might be. But our identity is established not by ourselves, but by God. This two-tier Christianity was set up in the Colossian church. If you look later in Colossians 2, I'll just read it to you. But you see Paul is addressing this. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. You see, there was this division between the simple Christians, the ordinary Christians, the the new Christians, and the sophisticated Christians. They had Jesus plus all these other things. To become a serious Christian. To become a saint. Now we know Paul did not mean that in two very simple ways. The first is that Paul is addressing this to the whole church in Colossae. To all of the messy Christians. And he's calling all of them saints. He's calling all of them faithful. But the second way we know that Paul is not just addressing super Christians, but all of the children of God. It's a preposition that comes right after. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Not in yourself, not in the good things you've done, but you are saints and you are faithful in Christ. Paul, in this little phrase, in Christ, is telling us of our union with Christ. That we are saints, that we are faithful, not because of what you do for Christ, but because you are hid in Christ. Did you hear that? You are saints and you are faithful, not because of what you do for Christ, but because you are hid in Christ. This little term, in Christ, expressing the union of Christ, is so profound. It is a mystery that I think we will be searching out for all of eternity we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. This is, could you put up the sermon slide for Colossians? I kind of want to explain it because I was working on this with Chadwick, and then I went to, to Chad and to Chris and said, what do you think? And they're, we don't understand it. And so what we were trying to communicate was union with Christ, that Christ is in us and we are in Christ. It is very hard to create an image of that. We did a Google image search and you got these funky things where there was like this picture of Jesus and then, the, then you know, the pastor's face was on his hand and the secretary's face was, was on his arm. And like, it was just weird. And so it's, how do you communicate union with Christ in a picture? So we had to be a little bit abstract, okay? This is actually ink that is just injected into water and you see it pluming and expanding. And as you look at this, you wonder, you know, what was it about that glass of water that gave it color? Was it that it it wanted to be water with color? Was it that it was such good water and it was such pure water that it became color? No, it's, it's, it's the infusion. It's the ink in the water. We're told throughout Colossians and throughout much of scripture that Christ is in us. That he is united to us. That that to one extent, you can't tell where he ends and where you begin and vice versa. That we are in Christ and Christ is in us. You know, we talked about our discomfort with this word saint and faithful. Today, we set up that two-tier Christianity all the time. Today, people in church might believe that if you want to be a serious Christian, you need to be a pastor or a missionary. People might think if you want to be a complete Christian, you need to speak in tongues and translate it. People in church believe if you want to be a super Christian, that you have to be radical. People in the church might believe if you want to be an intelligent Christian, you have to be reformed. But what we see here is that what makes someone a super Christian, what makes someone a saint, that makes someone faithful, is not what they believe. It's not what they do. It's what Christ has done for us. It is that we are hid in Christ. That's what makes us saints. That's what makes us holy. That's what makes us faithful. That's what makes us children of God. Finally, and I'm just going to breeze through it, we are recipients of grace and peace. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul is talking to Christians, and so he's not saying, I want you to have saving grace and the saving peace, but sanctifying grace, that we would grow in our knowledge of who we are in Christ and that we would be satisfied by the all-sufficient superior Savior. And then he also prays for peace, that we would have an inner peace, not not like the goofy know-yourself inner peace, but knowing that Christ is in you, that he is in charge of all things. I think Paul puts it well in Philippians when he said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. God is pouring out upon his saints grace and peace. So what? why does Paul start this letter? Let me just wrap this up. Why does Paul start this letter establishing our identity? Why does he want us to know that we are brothers and sisters in Christ? Why does he want us to know that we are deemed faithful, saints, holy, set apart? It's because our identity establishes our beliefs and our behaviors and our attitudes. Let me end with this. So most of you know I have four kids. One of them was up on stage earlier. I have four kids and one daughter, Carissa. And Carissa is daddy's little girl. Carissa is daddy's princess. And I tell her all the time, you are my princess. Well, Carissa goes to school, and sometimes Carissa picks up new language. Not from the teacher, but from kids. Words that start with the letter F. I won't tell you what it is. And she will come home and she will display her new language for us. She will show it to us. And, and we kind of laugh because we know she doesn't really know what she's doing. But when she does that, we, we pull her aside and we say, you're our princess. Is this how a princess talks? What we're establishing is you have an identity. You are daddy's princess. You are mommy's princess. Act according to who you are in our eyes. It's established. It's not going to change no matter what you do. You know, I know there will be a day when Carissa comes home and either a boyfriend broke up with her or she did something uh, really disobedient and mean, and she will be ashamed of herself and she will be sad and she will feel like she is nothing. And I'll pull her aside and whether she's 25, 35, or 55 and say, your daddy's princess your daddy's princess, that will never change no matter what anybody says. You see, it's so important for us to know our identity because it's where we find our value. It's where we find our worth. It's where we find our rest. Paul is establishing our identity in Christ, that we are family, that God is our father, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. You are saints. You are faithful, even if you don't feel like it. Not of your own doing, but because of your union with Christ. And that you are recipients of the overflowing river of God's grace and peace from God. And so who are you? You are Christ's beloved. And it is out of that foundation, out of that understanding, out of that belief, that we can live as children of God, as saints of God, as the faithful of God. Let's pray. Lord God, I confess that I often believe so many things the world tells me about myself. I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I'm not adequate. I'm dirty. But by the blood of Christ, all of that has changed. My identity has changed. Just as you turned Saul into Paul, you have turned sinners into saints. You have turned unholy into holy. You have turned faithless into faithful. Not because of what we have done, but because we are hid in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we praise you for that. And we pray this in His name. Amen.